Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the sermon. <laughs> Mr. Sniffles was a uh, polar bear, stuffed polar bear that I had as a kid. I used to carry him with me everywhere. He was a huge part of life for years. Over time, Mr. Sniffles started looking less and less like a stuffed polar bear and more and more like a rat with the plague. I rubbed off all his fur and twirled his little puffy tail until it looked like a snake. I mean, I had that bear. I mean, in fairness, honestly, he probably did have the plague. I got sick. I had Mr. Sniffles. I sneezed on him. I threw up on him. I sweat on him. I drooled on him. Like, that bear is, yeah, he belongs in, like, the CDC being studied. <laughs> but for a period of my life, Mr. Sniffles was everything. And then one day, I got older. I put Mr. Sniffles away. I never looked at it for him again. Because that's what happens as we get older. There are certain things that we say, certain things that we do, certain things that we have when we're children. That The older we get, the more we move away from those things, the more we leave those things behind. And, and in some cases, the longer it takes us to leave it behind, the weirder it gets. Do so we understand that children are meant to grow, to develop, to mature? That as we get older, we put away childish things in our lives and we live more for who we are. We live more for an age appropriate to who we are. We understand it physically, and yet we so rarely apply it spiritually. Despite the fact that the Bible, all throughout the Bible, the connection is made. Jesus says, when you come to me, you must be born again. You become a spiritual infant. And a lot of us, we do that. We come to Jesus, we get born again, but then we kind of stop. Just like we, with our children, expect them to grow, develop, and mature over time. So God, with his children, expects us to grow, develop, and mature. So this week, we're continuing in our series, Stand Firm. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And we're going to kind of continue off of what Pastor Rick unpacked for us last week. When Peter writes to this group of people who've experienced hardship, struggles, pain, and loss, who are hurting and reeling because they've been exiled from their homes and everything they'd know, ever known, and Peter writes to encourage them. And in that encouragement, Peter gives them a kingdom perspective, and he tells them that life and glory are like the grass of the field. It's here for a season, and then it's gone. But the kingdom of God is forever. The Word of God is forever. And the Word of God is good news. See, when we understand that the glories and the treasures, the pursuits and the pleasures of this life are like a flower of a field. They are here today and gone tomorrow. It changes how we value those things. It changes how we pursue them and desire them, doesn't it? 
Would you live your life devoted to a goal, knowing that the day you reach that goal, the day after that, you wouldn't have it anymore? Or do you go, you know what, I need a better goal. I need something that's going to last a little longer. And so what Peter teaches us and what Peter is instructing for these people is to understand from a kingdom perspective the things that have value versus the things that don't. But how does that perspective change our lives? How does that perspective, the kingdom perspective, change how we view the world? Well, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tested that the Lord is good. Malice, envy, deceit, slander, hypocrisy. Do you know what all of these things have in common? They are all detrimental to others. They all damage and spoil relationships. They're all sin. Like complaining, like criticism, these are things that we do to tear other people down. And when we do them, we're not honoring Jesus. We're not glorifying Jesus. We're shaming the very gospel we claim to believe in. See, the Bible teaches us that there are things that love is and things that love is not. And that there are things that love does and things that love does not do. And one of the most overlooked things on this list of things that love does not do is that love does not keep a record of wrongs. But how often do we, especially in our closest relationships, in our longest-term relationships, how often do we kind of hold on to the wrongs that people have done in the past? So when someone upsets us, when we get into an argument, we don't just argue about that thing. We start getting historical, right? We start bringing all these other things, all these other issues, all this other baggage back up, and we pile it on the top of the thing that we're dealing with. Why? I think it's because we recognize how petty what we're arguing over is. How petty the thing that has caused us to become frustrated is. And so to justify complaining about something that we recognize is so incredibly insignificant, the only way we can do that is by piling the past on top of it. The problem with that behavior is that when we start bringing up things from the past, when we start digging up these issues from previous encounters, previous mistakes and arguments and things, we demonstrate that we haven't let those things go that there's still like a, a festering corpse in our lives spreading disease and stench across everything else. We demonstrate that we have not actually forgiven those things because to forgive is to willfully choose not to hold a person's wrongs against them. Well, here's the thing. You can't not hold a person's wrongs against them and then turn that wrong against them and throw it in their face. Can't do both of those at the same time. When we keep these records of wrongs, when we get historical in our arguments, when we bring a bunch of other things in every time because we care more about winning the point than we do for the person, we demonstrate that in that moment, in that way, we are not loving because it is malicious. It is slanderous. Can you imagine how it would feel if every time we sinned, Jesus grabbed all of the sins of our past and brought them up 
If we wouldn't want Jesus to do that to us, why do we do it to other people? Why do we do it to each other, especially to the people that we love the most? Love does not keep a record of wrongs, which means love can never go historical in the negative, only in the positive. Love is not self-seeking. When Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 tells us about all these different practical characteristics of love, he doesn't say that love complains in all things. What he says is that love bears all things. Love endures all things. Because the Bible makes it very clear. Love does not tear down. Love does not diminish the other person. Love builds up. Love is thankfulness. Love is appreciation. Love is value and respect. Love is honor and caring. Love looks to the admirable qualities of a person. Love looks for good to celebrate in the person, to focus on not the negative things, but the positive things. But a lot of times what happens in our own immaturity and our sinfulness and our selfishness is we focus on the flaws of other people. Because by focusing on their flaws, we feel better about our own. But love doesn't do that. To love someone is to put their good ahead of your good. It is to put their wants ahead of your wants. It's to put their happiness ahead of your happiness. Love is the fruit of maturing in the gospel. And so what Peter is challenging us to do here in chapter 2 is to grow up. To put aside, to put away the childish, immature things of our past, the negativeness, the criticalness, the complaining, to put it away, and to grow in the love of the gospel of Jesus. My son is two, and we spend a lot of time in our house talking about developmental milestones. Three years ago, I had no idea what a developmental milestone was. Now it's a conversation I have every week. Because we're cons we want to make sure that he's not just growing. We want to make sure that he's growing at the proper pace. We don't want him getting left behind. We don't want him falling behind on anything. So we want to make sure, hey, is he, is he where he's supposed to be? Is he falling in line in all these places? Unfortunately for me, my kid's genius. And I thought while having a child, I was going to have a few years where I was not the dumbest one in the house. And I didn't even make it two. There are things that he does right now. I mean, as a parent, there are very few things more exciting and more heartwarming, more joy-filling than watching your child learn about the world, experience the new adventures of things, the awe that they feel over stuff that we've forgotten how incredible it is because it's become mundane to us. It's beautiful. My son, he says some of the funniest stuff. He does some of the cutest things. I mean, he is adorable. And it's adorable what he does now because what he's doing is age appropriate. Two years from now, three years from now, if he's still doing some of those same things, it's not cute, it's not funny, it's not adorable. It's sad because it means he's not growing and developing. And the natural expectation we have that we understand about life is that life grows, life matures, life develops. And yet what happens so often in the modern church is that people come to Jesus, they're born again into Jesus, they become spiritual infants, and then they stop moving completely. 
And they spend the rest of their lives in spiritual diapers, drinking spiritual formulas, sucking on a spiritual pacifier. Because it is possible and sadly common to grow old in your faith without ever growing up in your faith. In the course of my life, I have met so many Christians who had been Christians for longer than I had been alive, who should have had spiritual children and spiritual grandchildren and spiritual great-grandchildren because they discipled someone who then they taught to disciple someone who then discipled someone else and just kept moving. And so they're four or five spiritual generations down. They should have been at that point. But even having been in the church for 40 or 50 years, they couldn't clearly present the gospel. They didn't feel comfortable talking about their faith, sharing the good news with anyone. They didn't even feel comfortable talking about or leading a discussion about Jesus in a room with people who already know and love him. And sometimes in the modern church, it seems like that's the target we're aiming at. Get in, get saved, be done. Don't have to think about it. Don't have to worry about it. Don't have to do anything with it after that because sometimes it's like we view our faith not as a living thing to be grown, developed, and cultivated, but as a box to be checked. That's cool. I believe in Jesus. I can call myself a Christian. I'm saved. Don't need to do anything else. But the gospel calls us not just to come to Jesus, but to grow in Jesus, to mature in our relationship with him. In fact, the way that Peter phrases things here, it almost sounds like he's saying, if you're not growing up in the gospel, you may not belong to Jesus anyway. Every one of us comes to Jesus as an infant. When we surrender ourselves to him, we are spiritual infants. There's no shame in being a spiritual infant. The shame is staying there. Living things grow. Living things develop. Living things mature. And one of the first steps that we take in maturing is putting away the childish things of our past. It's putting away the stuff, the spiritual immaturity, the behaviors that are not conducive to the Christian life. It's putting away malice and envy and slander and criticism and complaining. It's putting them away because we recognize that they're childish and we don't need to invest any more energy in being a child. First thing you do when you grow up is you leave the childish things behind. And that's what Peter calls us to do to grow up in the love of the gospel, out of our love for Jesus to become mature that we might build up one another in him. Verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for who be- you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected 
has become the cornerstone. In the Old Testament, there was a frequent use of this imagery of a stone to represent the temple of God, the people of God, the kingdom of God. David uses it, Daniel uses it, Isaiah uses it. And for the people of God, this was a hugely important image. They related to it, they connected to it. It was one of, it was one of their favorite pieces of imagery to understand and identify with themselves with the kingdom of God. And then Jesus comes along, and he takes all those passages, and he makes them about himself. Not about the temple, not about the kingdom, not about the people of God. He makes the passages about himself. And in so doing, what Jesus is declaring is that all of the promises that God has made are being fulfilled in me. Now, the religious leaders did not care for that at all. They considered it blasphemous that Jesus would put himself, that he would elevate himself in that way. So they had him murdered. So the stone, rejected by the builders, becomes the cornerstone. The most important part of any building is its foundation. No amount of quality materials, no amount of skillful design can fully overcome a flawed foundation. The structural integrity of everything that is built is built on the foundation. And so in Jesus' day, when they went to build, they would build with stones. And so builders would do, grab stones from two places. The first is they would go to the quarry. They would get freshly cut stones. And then they would go find buildings that had been knocked over, buildings that had fallen apart or been abandoned, and then they would recycle those stones to use in their building. It's faster and cheaper to do it that way. The most important stone, the stone that they started with, when they took all the stones that they had, they would find the most perfectly cut, the straightest stone that they had. They would place that first and every other stone in the building would be laid adjacent to that, would be fixed on that, aligned with that first stone. That first stone, that perfectly cut stone, the stone upon which all other stones were set, was called the cornerstone. It was the single most important stone in the entire building. It was the focal point of the construction. It set the structural integrity of whatever was built upon it. The cornerstone was the most important piece. And the cornerstone is Jesus. That means that our lives, our hope, our faith, they're built around Jesus. Everything that we have, everything that we say, everything that we do, everything that we are is built around Jesus. It means every aspect of our life gets aligned with him, gets placed adjacent to him, is connected and fitted around him because everything in us and everything that is built in us is centered around the cornerstone that is Jesus. And Peter calls us living stones. He says that we are the stones that God has chosen to use in the spiritual house that he is building on the cornerstone that is Jesus. This is why malice, envy, slander, criticism, complaining, this is why they're so toxic in the Christian community. 
They threaten our structural integrity. The gospel brings us together. The gospel bonds us together. Despite having differences in backgrounds, experience, and understanding, differences in perspective and views and history, the gospel bonds us to one another. It is our selfishness. It is our immaturity. It is our sinfulness that pushes us apart. God chose us to be stones in his building. We were meant to build each other up, to hold each other up, not to tear each other down. And so we let go. We put away the childish things of malice and slander, the childish behaviors of our own selfishness because they destroy the very thing that God is building with us. As Christians, we should strive to talk good about people behind their backs. As Christians, our compliments should far outweigh our complaints. As Christians, any criticism that we might ever offer should get lost in a boundless sea of relentless encouragement because we have grown away from the negativity and the tearing down and the critical nature of others and we've grown up in the love and the grace of the gospel, a love and grace that builds up, that constructs, that holds and binds together. Because the gospel that ties us together is greater than any of the things that we divide over. Our goal, our mission as people of God is to build each other up, not to tear each other down. Verse 8. And the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, this is talking about the same stone that the builders rejected that becomes the cornerstone. It's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Jesus calls us to deny ourselves. He calls us to die to ourselves. He calls us to let go of our desires, our passions, our rights, our pride, even our own liberties in our pursuit of Him. And in this life, we will either surrender to Jesus or we will stumble over Jesus. And which one we do is determined and made evident in how we respond to Him. See, when we surrender to Jesus, we obey Him. We build our lives around him. He is our cornerstone. We fix ourselves around him, align ourselves to him, adjust ourselves based on him. And every component of every aspect of every area of our life is built around the cornerstone that is Jesus. But not everyone will do that. The same stone that we build our lives around causes others to stumble because they don't like what Jesus says. They don't like what the Bible teaches because it doesn't fit with how they feel. It doesn't fit with what they want. It doesn't fit with the cornerstone of self. And so they will reject Jesus either outright, they will reject Jesus by ignoring him, or the worst, they will reject Jesus by trying to realign him. It never ceases to amaze me the ways in which we so willingly deceive ourselves. Nobody starts 
in perfect alignment with Jesus. We're not born that way. We're born depraved, sinful creatures. Those who surrender to Jesus align themselves with Jesus and build themselves around Jesus. But sometimes people can't let go of themselves, can't let go of their wants and their desires. And so rather than changing themselves and aligning themselves to Jesus by dying to themselves, what they do is they try to change Jesus to align with them. They shift the stone that is Jesus instead of shifting the stone that is their own life. You can't build anything with a poor foundation. And once you start shifting your cornerstone, everything else gets messed up. We can convince ourselves that Jesus is whatever we want. We can tell ourselves that we follow him. We can quote scriptures out of context all day. Jesus is who Jesus is, and that is not changed by our perspective or desire. Changing Jesus, the cornerstone that God has set in place, is not an option. So we're left with one of two choices. Either we are transformed by Jesus or we trip over Jesus. Verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. All throughout this book, Peter just sprinkles in these little encouragements, these little reminders to people who are struggling and going through hardship. He says, you're a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood chosen as a holy people of God belonging to Jesus. This is a great comfort that we were chosen by God to be his royal priesthood. And this language is not just some fanciful poetic language. This is a statement of our identity. When you surrender yourself to Jesus, when you give your life to Jesus, when you call yourself a Christian, you are part of a royal priesthood. A priest is someone who has an intimate knowledge of God and who serves as a mediator between God and man. A priest is someone who serves God and who has devoted their life to God. It is the purpose and the reason for their entire existence. Above all things, in front of all things, a, a priest exists to serve God. That's you. Every Christian is a part of a royal priesthood, a chosen and holy people set apart by God to build the kingdom of God for the glory of God through doing the work of God. The mission of Jesus is not something that was given for pastors and elders and some spiritually elite people who have some special calling in their life. It is given to every Christian. It belongs to all of us. So creating a culture where people are welcomed and loved in the community of God is part of all of our jobs. Creating a place where people can grow and be encouraged and they can feel loved and supported even in their sinfulness so that they can grow out of that sinfulness and grow into the righteousness of Jesus is a responsibility for each and every one of us. 
The great commission to make disciples of all nations, to preach the gospel to all nations, is the job of every Christian who draws breath. Failure to do so is willful disobedience to Jesus. This whole idea just don't really feel like that. It's not, not my thing. It's not my gift. I don't feel called to that. That is Christianity. You can't be a Christian without that. That's what it means. That's what you signed up for. Jesus didn't say, accept that I exist. He says, follow me. Passive, active. Active is what he calls us to. Follow me. Live for me. Die to all of those self things. Mature and grow in me. Never does Jesus call someone to be a spiritual spectator who sits on the sideline and watches and says, good game to the people who are playing. Never does Jesus call someone to become a spiritual infant and remain there. He calls us to be born again. And he challenges us to grow up, to get rid of the pacifier, to get rid of the binky, to get rid of the safety blanket, to get rid of the diapers and the formula, and to become a people who build his kingdom for his glory, because you and I, all of us, are a royal priesthood in Christ Jesus. Verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In Peter's sort of wrap-up of this little section, he challenges them, avoid the passions of the flesh. Avoid dishonorable behavior. Live in a way that when other people who don't love Jesus see your life, no matter how much they dislike what you believe, no matter how much they dislike your faith, they can't help but be impressed and honor how you've lived. Our lives are a testimony. We are an example. We are called to be an example for Jesus. That when the world looks at us, they might see him radiating through us. We are called to proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. You can't do that with a pacifier in your mouth. You can't do that sucking on spiritual formula all the time. The only way we honor Jesus in our lives is that we continue to grow in him because all living things grow. And if you're not growing in Jesus, you don't have life in Jesus. So we grow in the wonder of who he is. See, life, your life is a building. And that building is going to be set on a cornerstone. So consider, what are you building your life around? 
What is that thing in your life that everything else is connected to, that everything else is focused on, that everything else is built around? Is it money, career, success, power, influence, pride, reputation, performance? What is the thing that it always comes back to? What is the thing that drives and motivates you more than anything else? The thing that you focus on more than anything else? The thing that you're passionate about more than anything else? The thing that at any moment you can bring a conversation back to because that's the thing you want to talk about more than anything else? That is the cornerstone of your life. As the children of God, our cornerstone is Jesus. The more we grow in Him, the more we mature in Him, the more readily and clearly it will be seen that every aspect of our life is built around Him. This life, church, it's all about what we do with Jesus. And the question is do you just surrender to Him as your cornerstone? Or do you stumble over Him because you're continuing to build your life around yourself? The commission of Peter is simple. We grow up that we might glorify Jesus and that we might build each other up in the love of the gospel. Is that what we're doing? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you would choose us to be stones in your spiritual house that you would see us as worthy to be used for building and developing your kingdom. And I pray that you would give us a heart that reflects your kingdom and that reflects your glory. I pray that you would stir in us a desire to lift each other up, even if that means by putting someone else on our back. Because it's not about us. It's about you. So build with us. Use us. Help us experience the wondrous glory of who you are and the peace that comes from being a royal priesthood. May we live for you. Build our lives around you. And God, my prayer is that you would reveal to each of us an area of immaturity, an area of childishness that we have not let go of in our lives, that you would bring it to mind, that you would make it clear in our hearts, and that you would convict us of that, that we could put that away and begin our journey of radical pursuit of you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for grace. Amen.